in this episode. We count on motivation for everything, though. We count on motivation for setting up habits. We count on motivation for getting our job done. We count on motivation for getting us to pick up the phone and call that girl to go on a date. So, but the problem is motivation always will come down. It always will. It's just how it works. So if we use motivation as a sustainable way to create permanent change, it will never work. Learn to perform. Practical lessons so that you can immediately learn to optimize your health, happiness, and performance. Welcome to another episode of Learn to Perform. I'm your host, Braden Ostepcha. Today's guest is someone who I was very fortunate to connect with recently, someone who is truly living the high-performance lifestyle right now and is going to share some outstanding insights today into his life, expertise, experiences, and more. Today's guest is Sid Chala, and he is a personal development coach, three-time CEO, two-time author, certified neuroscience and NLP, neurolinguistic programming professional, thought leader, motivational speaker, and has helped over hundreds of people in his works. And yes, that is a lot to process. And wow, incredible. Anyways, just as he seeks excitement in his personal life, Sid pushes himself to be at the cutting edge in his professional life. Following his passion for innovation, Sid earned his degree in informatics at Indiana University and currently resides in New York City, where he works for J.P. Morgan Chase as a business intelligence engineer specializing in data strategy. In his free time, Sid runs a popular personal development blog and enjoys reconnecting with his Indian roots since living there for five years. He also actively volunteers for Minds Matter, the American Red Cross, and the American Indian Foundation. Above all, Sid is passionately committed to a path of constant growth and development in pursuit of excellence. So I'm very happy to be talking to Sid today. I have listened to a few of your podcasts. I have started to look into your work and your blog, and I love everything you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you, my friend. Um, yeah, every time I hear that intro, I need to start getting used to it. I'm not used to, uh, you know, putting all my like accolades together. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. But when I hear from a third person perspective, I'm like, yeah, did I do all that? But I, <laughs> I guess I did. So um, right. hey, I'm you know, excited it's, to it's be amazing here. when it's, yeah. yeah, it's amazing when you start to accumulate all of those little bits. And when you're in that process all the time, and when you're working through certifications and through your education, and, you know, yeah. doing one company or another, you're so often just locked in on that moment. And then sometimes when you just widen your lens and you see, whoa, you know, in X period of time, I've accomplished a lot. And it's incredible. It's, 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 it's amazing. And I think a lot of the big issue that stems with, um, at least our generation is they see people on online social media already achieving with the Lamborghinis and the, and the wealth and like, you know, on a yacht, how'd you get this? Like Forex trading or whatever, right? Like getting those <laughs> random ads. But, um, People don't realize it takes certain steps to get there. Even those people who have gotten to that, unless they're like lucky, right? Which once again, it's unpredictable chances, you know, source of uh, success. There are certain things and most of it comes down to habits, performance, like you said, um, uh, like the mindset, productivity, that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here, man. And uh, I'll, you know, I'll listen to a couple of your podcasts. You have an amazing audience. Um, I think what you're doing is an amazing mission, consolidating, you know, information that people aren't getting really people are looking for but they're leaving their growth to randomness and you're actually providing a source of information that's really high quality and valuable plus your website super cool aesthetic i'm a big design guy um i don't know how you figured it out but the the green and the, like the, the the colors the white space everything you did very cool looking website so you know i'd recommend um you know anyone who's listening if you haven't checked it out go ahead it's awesome website <laughs> Well, thank you very much. And I have to give full credit. I had one of my friends from back in high school, uh, Leo Broadhead, who has his own design company. And he did all of the design work for me. So the branding, the colors, the logo, and had another really good friend from college 
who put together the website for me. So I'm not, unlike you, I'm not exactly the, the tech Cody guy. So <laughs> I outsourced the important stuff so that I could just do the easy stuff, Perfect. like talking to great guests like you. And it's, you know, it's funny, you're you just mentioning how you like that I have been able to consolidate information, but really, I don't think that's anything that I've been, what I'm doing is I'm trying to take expertise from people who are doing amazing things like you, which is why I'm super excited to talk to you because I can now pick into your brain, which I've already uh, a little bit, not for the viewers or in a conversation being able to do. And as we transition from that intro, then what I want to ask you to kind of lay the framework for this entire conversation is how do you define high performance? Because you're someone who has done a lot and is still doing a lot and not just doing quantity, but you're doing quality. So you're doing high quantity of high quality. And without giving a personal definition of high performance to me, that is what high performance is all about. And, you know, I just had a recent guest talking about the idea is that it's a, you're allowed to be great at multiple things. You don't have to limit yourself to one box. Right. And so you are excelling in many things. So I'm curious, though, what is your definition of high performance? Now, that's that's a really good point you brought up, Raiden. And I think the the big thing is a lot of people, they, they try everything. They try the buffet of life, but they don't really practice getting good at it. They just try everything, pick up the fork and then drop it. But I think the big thing that has enabled me to be highly productive is, um, well, well, there's two things. One is... Um, uh, emotional forecasting. And a lot of people do this all the time. Essentially, they, they, um, pre-predict what event is going to make them feel like. So they'll say, Oh, um, you know, I can't do this because I'm going to feel this way in the future. Or like, yeah, I don't know if I'm a good runner because, and this guy hasn't even run before. I mean, let me, so like, so like emotional forecasting is when you predict the emotions of what you're going to already be feeling after the event is done when you haven't even done it yet. You know, so and this is a this is a common fallacy that a lot of us fall into, myself included, huge amount. So um, constantly what I've been doing is uh, trying to catch myself in the moment that like, oh, like this is a lot of work. I don't know if I should join this course, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm going to be straight. You haven't even done the course yet, dude. Right. Like may maybe you start. So 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 the reason I'm trying to get into that is one, it's your mindset. So your mindset is hugely important. And for me, that's been my biggest success. Like, you know, that's been giving me that momentum. So having this mindset that, like you said, you can achieve anything you want. I think I'm a little turtle, you know, just like slowly moving on this race. But um, like you mentioned in the beginning, I, I had uh, over time, I've uh, you know got a lot of notches on my belt from different things. And that's the biggest thing. And the second is the kind of the core research of my work, which is that breakthroughs aren't accidental, they're induced. So you can create breakthroughs, you can create a system for creativity. Ultimately, what it comes down to the legend sources, the greats, the great sources, the averages, like it's, it's all comes down to the power of your, your creativity, how you're able to actually induce it versus just waiting for drawing is something from your psyche, sitting there and waiting for it to just happen to you. It doesn't happen that way. If you look at a lot of successful people, they're extremely passionate about something. And then what happens is they understand how creativity works and they're able to make it work for them. The same way how the stock market works, right? You can either earn money and wait for money and keep you know, trading time for money or you can have money work for you. Why not have time work for you? You know, people don't think about that. Why not invest your time into strategies and frameworks? And then the third component, which I think is maybe highly successful in this field is um, habits. Um, when you start making habits and you create your system on autopilot, it pretty much leaves your chance of productivity having deep work only those times when you actually need it. For example, there, there's a choice paradox that a lot of uh, people that hinders their, their, their productivity and, and how successful they are. For example, they wake up 
they brush their teeth. They're like, which toothpaste do I use? Okay. They go into the shower. Which body wash do I use? Um, they come out. What clothes do I wear today? Um, back in the day before pre-pandemic. All right, I'm driving to work. Let me stop by Starbucks. Which coffee should I get? Like, you know, they get to the work. They go to the breakfast line. They're like, oh, what do I want for breakfast? By the time they sit down and actually get to work, work. They've already exhausted their, 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 their capacity, their cognitive capacity to even like make decisions based on the fact that of, of real quality, deep work. So what I've done is I've chosen to live a life minimum choice, uh, sorry, choice minimum lifestyle. So essentially I don't have too many clothes. I have a couple of clothes I like. I stick with that. I don't really differ. I don't really lose my brain power on different laundry detergents or toothbrushes or all this stuff. I have put my routine into an unchanging um, system and framework that I wake up at a certain time, sleep at a certain time. I, I do this, do that, do that. So when I'm actually looking for those pockets of deep work, I know ex- my brain is ready and fired up to actually perform. So it's not over, like, you know, ca- lagging or catching up and thinking about Starbucks. It's, it's ready to execute. So wow. those are the main three things. If, if any of that helps emotional forecasting, the mindset second is, you know, of course, breakthroughs are induced they're not you know you can actually create them for yourself creativity on demand and lastly living a choice minimum lifestyle that okay that's probably the most comprehensive answer i've had to that question which is phenomenal and i do love that and you know emotional forecasting is terminology that i haven't really heard about i think intuitively people may understand it that you're you're basically imposing your own limitations on yourself by saying Mm -hmm. oh this is X is going to lead to Y and therefore I should or should not do it as opposed to actually allowing yourself the opportunity to explore and try and create something different. And then I love, uh, remind me again on the second point. I'm trying to refresh everything out. Oh, it's, it's, of course, it's that you can induce breakthroughs. You can okay. induce creativity on demand. You don't have to wait for it to happen. So if you can right. create a system and structure of creativity where it's constantly outputting these creative ideas, you're unstoppable. You know, so. Right. Okay. And we're, that's something we're going to dive in a lot, oh, in a, just a little bit in this conversation. But I want to first lead off with cognitive capacity because it's something that I've been talking a lot with other people. And I think it's so important that we understand how we can, like you said, systemize your life and create habits so that you can maximize your efficiency. And basically, you're, in many ways, you almost have to perform an audit of your day and reflect on everything that you're doing and the decisions you're making and how that affects your performance and how that takes away from your capacity. And I was reading Behave by Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroendocrinologist at Stanford. And I know you have a little bit of expertise in neuroscience, so you can elaborate on this for me. And he was talking about the concept of willpower. And he said, willpower is appropriately termed because it truly is power. We have finite resources in the prefrontal cortex with our neurons being able to handle the capacity for decision-making and you know how we think through our processes. And so like you said, if you're have 100 decisions that you've had to make already by 8 a.m. and you get to the office, you know, you've depleted a finite amount of reserves. It's not just infinite where you can continue to make effective decision making. And effective decision making, having that cognitive capacity is so important to perform at the highest level in whatever discipline you may be, whether you're studying or you're working in one field or something else, right? So I would love for you to share a little bit more about, you know, cognitive capacity and how to manage that or even something that I heard you talking about was the difference between the default mode network and executive mode network. And I'd, I'd love for you to spit out some some neuroscience jargon and, and, and hit us with the, the hard science, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's, so there, there's a lot of things to break down here. Let me first touch on your point on willpower. So yeah, as you know, I'm you know huge uh, nerd about neuroscience. Um, interesting thing about willpower, he is absolutely right. It's, it's finite. So when you, you know, use your willpower up in these small minor choices, which don't really add value to your life, you end up losing it. 
an interesting case is um, maybe you read about this, but judges when they're actually giving out orders for um, bail sentences. Yeah. And I can see you smiling. Um, it, Essentially in the morning is the highest, you know, highest return on the fact that they'll get a, you know, a reduced sentence. And then yeah. as it comes down to lunch, it, it becomes tougher, stricter, stricter, stricter. Right after lunch, they recharge their batteries. And once again, it goes high. And this is the, and, and they have the highest return on uh, getting, um, you know, a reduced sentence. So it's crazy how people's lives are being determined on willpower. And we as a human species haven't even figured out how willpower works yet. Like this is, these are things that are pretty, pretty uh, understandable at this point. Another thing I want to add on to that is motivation. So it's almost a bedrock of our society that we feel like if we just try harder to do something, we'll get it done, right? If I just wake up, try harder to wake up at five, we'll get it done. Mm -hmm. But motivation in itself, it's scientists call it the motivation monkey because motivation in itself wanes. If you count, motivation goes up and down, up and down. If you expect motivation to go up and that's when you're fired up and you're working, it will go down. It's just, it's just how motivation works. Um, so we count on motivation for everything though. We count on motivation for setting up habits. We count on motivation for getting our job done. We count on motivation for getting to pick up the phone and call that girl to go on a date. So, but the problem is motivation always will come down. It always will. It's just how it works. So if we use motivation as a sustainable way to create permanent change, it will never work. You have to behaviorally change, not rely on motivation. So that's a really interesting thing. And that's what I talk about in my book, you know, creating actual behavior changes. And I know we discuss on this, like how to actually create a structure in life, you know, physio how physiology affects psychology. But um, sorry, uh, we, we were discussing a cognitive capacity, right? So um, yeah. here's what I think is very, very interesting um, in terms of cognitive capacity. We think that as we get older, we start losing that ability. You know, they say as you get above a certain age, you will have, you know, reduced learning abilities, reduced memory capabilities, etc. But that's not how your hypothalamus and amygdala work. Um, essentially, there's a, the, the type of intelligence we're talking about here is called fluid intelligence, meaning your ability to find a new ways to actually implement new strategies. So there is the other intelligence, which is just, you know, knowing facts and numbers, right? Like two times two is four. But fluid intelligence is what we start getting into creativity and innovation, essentially tinkering with the same idea and applying it to a different field, which is quite literally the definition of innovation. Um, but fluid intelligence is something we can train. It's something we can do. But the problem with our society is we think that, oh, we should need to do more Sudokus and crossword puzzles and this will train our intelligence. No, cognitive capacity is only trained in one way, and that is consistently trying to do things in a new way. If that is either brushing your teeth with a different opposite hand, if that is going to work in a different way, if that is wearing clothes but that you wouldn't really wear, what happens is we get stuck in a rut. We almost feel like we do the same thing over and over again. And this is the whole monotony, nine to five rat race, you know, whatever you call it, people have their own name for it. But we can break through that. And that's where actually intelligence comes in. So fluid intelligence is something you can work on. And fluid intelligence is what you need to work on because that quite literally is what increases cognitive ability, cognitive uh, reserves. So, and there's a couple of ways you can do it. Like I mentioned, trying something in a new way, trying something in a new different way, a different way. But essentially, here's like my five tips I would guess I would give to people who are trying to increase their fluid intelligence. One, seek novelty. It's not easy. You know, I go to the same restaurant, order the same quesadillas every single time. But if you seek novelty, that is one way to really challenge yourself. Number two, you can actually do things the hard way. And I know we don't really ever want to, but there's a concept where it's called um, A over B. Essentially, the way our neural pathways are working is that it always fires in the way of the pathway we've used the most often. 
So think about it this way. Um, it snows outside and you need to go to the mailbox to get your mail, right? You, there's a bunch of snow and you make a trodden path towards your mailbox and you use that same path of the same foot imprints to walk back down. So I'm trying to explain essentially neuroplasticity and, and how neural network works. So what happens is that every single time you want to go get the mail, why would you go and step in the fresh new pile of snow when you're going to get your boots covered? You're going to take the path that's already less trodden. You're going to walk right. past those footsteps already. So that's the way your brain works. And what I was talking about, those footsteps are called myelin sheep. So essentially what happens is that these railways, think about it, that connect from one, one, one action to event, one event to an occurrence are constantly being coded in more myelin sheath over and over and over again. Think about it, more more footsteps and more footsteps are footsteps. Yeah. So essentially what happens at the end of the day, you're going to use that path no matter what happens, even if it is the harder path, but to you, it's the easier path. And that's right. why it's much easier to fall in our own ways. That's why habit change is tough. It's not easy oftentimes. There are a lot of strategies we can do to make it simpler, but there, there so there's... um. There's a common saying that I'm maybe you've, you know, someone said on your podcast, but neurons that fire together are wired together, right? <laughs> and that's a very common saying, but I like to add okay. on to that. Neurons that lose their link get out of sync. So okay. neurons that are wired together fire together. So essentially, if you do two things over and over and over and over and over again, those neurons in your brain will fire together over and over and over again. If it's either picking up a cigarette or if it's going out to work. If it's either working out, whatever, they fire together. But if you want a neuron to, you know, if you want to lose their link, that that's the only way they get out of sync. Meaning you have to do something crazy, different, uncomfortable. So that's my third point. Get uncomfortable. The more uncomfortable you get, the more fluid intelligence is going to increase, which is going to increase your co cognitive capacity. Getting uncomfortable is tough. And the way I like to frame this to clients is, um, have you, I don't know if you've seen Indiana Jones. Of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, Indiana Jones. So, so in one of the movies, I forgot which one, but essentially there's like a, there, there's like an ornament in the front and he has to, and there's like all these like crazy contraptions that like if he touches that, I forgot what it was, like a skull or a head or something. Is that when he has the bag of sand and he has to switch it over? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Exactly. So, so his fear is that I need to do it at the same exact time. It's uncomfortable feeling. He's like, also, I might put my hand there and might just get cut off. Who knows what crazy ancient contraptions are here? That is what I mean by uncomfortable. People think uncomfortable just means waking up an hour earlier. No, the only way your brain works to getting rid of its neural path, you know, the already myelin sheathed neural pathways is to get extremely uncomfortable to the point you're Indiana Jones. Like, okay, I need to grab that skull, but if I put my hand there, I might lose my hand. Also, I need to swap the, 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 the sand, the sandbag at the same time. Is this enough sand? I don't even know. So. That's what uncomfortable is. When you have these decisions you have to make in life and that's how you're feeling, you're feeling like Indiana Jones. That is the right thing to do at that moment. That's actually your brain working against you because it's already coded a myelin sheath pathway of whatever most least resistance of habits you've done. So number four, I would say is A over B. And this is what I mean by that. We always do A, you know, I eat breakfast eggs. I do this, that, you know, if someone says, hey, Sid, you suck, I respond in a certain way. Certain, the, the reaction is B. Try B over A. What happens if you switch up your answer? What happens if one, you know, you always do A, 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 but one day you try B instead. So, so there's always an alternative route. And the thing is that we're so narrow focused with our blinders on that we don't even realize there's an option B. So we used to, you know, action equals A, action equals A. So what about action could equal B? 
you know, and this kind of goes back to your original point that, you know, people can be really successful and do a lot of high quality output in a lot of different fields. It's just that we think A, 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 A. So I always have a, I, I always tell clients, you know, um, and I learned this from this bootcamp I did from the Art of Charm, but what about B over A, you know, choose B instead of A in life. And the last thing I would say is um, network. So networking with other individuals, like, you know, I met you, you met me, and now we're learning new ways of thinking, right? So, um, so networking with other individuals, we have such an ability online with social media, instead of just scrolling mindlessly through, instead of passively consuming content, actively consume content, reach out, DM, message people, learn about them, see an interesting post, comment. So, so um, people uh, often passively just consume content, sit back and turn on Netflix and watch passively just watch videos on instagram i say actively consume content actively put yourself out there and dm and reach out and engage with the platforms that's when you get results otherwise you're the product remember at the end of the day so um yeah i, I forgot in which order i said which five points but those are my main five points i would say to increase fluid intelligence which is the number one correlating factor to increasing your cognitive capacity and reserves Okay, I, I love that. There's so much here. I, I had to <laughs> grab my book and take a few notes. Uh, but this is exactly where I wanted this conversation to go. I wanted to be a perfect so we can learn, you know, <laughs> about how we can become more creative and how we can optimize the way we see the world and how we perform. And we'll get more into your book in a second. I wanted to go back when you were talking. I think it was your second point. Uh, and obviously this is into the whole bigger picture of cognitive capacity. You're talking about seeking discomfort. So, you know, trotting the path through the snow. Yeah. Um, so what I guess I wanted to understand is, this is, in many ways, this is the neuroplasticity. So our brain has the ability to create new pathways. Mm -hmm. Like constantly throughout life, like you were showing, that we can constantly learn and grow. There isn't an age where it's like, oh, I can no longer learn. I mean, there's been tons of research that show exactly. reduced onset of degenerative brain diseases like Alzheimer's dementia, for example, for people that try learning language or an instrument at older age. Like learning piano, for example, because it's a mm -hmm. whole different set of stimulus. And, you know, you're firing new pathways. You're trotting new paths in the snow. Same thing like if you learn a new language or if you do something different. So I was wondering, um, honestly, I had some question here and I don't really know what it is. Maybe I just want no, to follow I mean, up I can, on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I can add on to that. Is, uh, exactly. So there's these things in the world called blue zones where essentially they're centurions, which people who lived over a hundred, there's six blue zones mm -hmm. in this world. I think six or eight, I forgot which number, but you know, don't count me on that. But essentially these are a high intense population of people who are living above the age of a hundred and People did research, like, what are they doing right here? Because there's really just these certain certain sections of the world that have over, like, like so many over hundreds mm -hmm. of years old people. And, of course, it comes down to, of course, the brain, health brain. Of course, there's, like, small things. You know, people joke around, oh, they have a glass of wine, whatever, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. but that also they, love to, they have to take it back to the wine all the time. Yeah, yeah, always back, <laughs> yeah right? always, always back. You always have to... <laughs> <laughs> I love how they always bring that up. Oh, yeah, dark chocolate and wine is the secret to my yeah. age. No, it's reducing stress, which is why I drink wine, but you can do that in a healthier way. Whatever. They live yeah. to 120. <laughs> if I live to 55 or whatever, I'll be happy. Um, but <laughs> um, what I'm trying to get to is um, it comes down to your brain health. And that's why it's so important. And in our generation, we're worried about doing Sudoku or these brain games. And I get ads on the time all on Instagram, like do these brain games to increase your brain. No. That doesn't make your brain any stronger, smarter. It just makes you better at that game. It makes you better That's at that one thing, right? Like because you're just you reinforcing at that one specific pathway as opposed to expanding Ex and creating a whole new network of neural Exactly. Paths. Exactly. Okay. And that's exactly the point I was going through that we can all have breakthroughs. We all have the same architecture for it. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's a human ability. It's, I mean, I'm sure there's animals too. I haven't studied animals, but it's our ability. And here's the keyword to physically 
build new neural connections that will yeah. allow us to have these breakthroughs and these, you know, new habits or whatever. The issue is that our brain just kind of gets out of shape. You know, the people just aren't, if people feel like they're unable to be creative or breakthroughs or have this like, oh, I'm losing my, I forgot what we talked about. I'm, I'm, I'm getting bad at memory. You know, your brain's just literally getting out of shape. Yeah. Um, it's imagine like uh, someone who's a total couch potato for their whole life. They don't ever work out. They just sit chips and you know, eat chips and just watch TV all day. And then they say, hey, go do 10 push-ups. And they try doing 10 push-ups and they're like, ah, I guess I can't do it. I guess I'm just not wired for push-ups. And you as an <laughs> athlete, you understand this. No, it's just you're out of shape. People think that, oh, no one ever says like, I'm not wired for push-ups. We'll say, oh, I'm not wired for creativity. I'm not wired um, yeah. to have better memory. It's just your brain's out of shape, man. And the way to increase the, you know, the, the physical, literally physical neural connections in your brain is by trying new things, which is increasing your, you know, your, your fluid intelligence. Um, and like you said, musical instrument, learning a language. If you learn another language, it quite literally changes the perspective you see life through. It literally adds, it adds like years to your brain health life. Music, learning a new music, um, it, it can be anything. Once again, um, I forgot the five points I initially said, but, just challenging yourself, doing something the hard way, doing something that's uncomfortable, uh, finding a way that you haven't done something before. So a novel way of thinking, you know, brushing your teeth with a different hand. No one even does that. Have, why don't you do that? You know, because yeah. again, you or maybe you know, close one eye or stand on your left foot and do it. I've had, I've tried doing stuff like that. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. just how uncomfortable it is. I mean, you get about ten seconds in, I'm like, oh, I better switch back to my right hand. This isn't right. I can't get to the back molars properly. You know. <laughs> And, and see, that's the interesting thing, like at, at our age, right? But when, when we were kids, everything was amazing. Everything we were imagining, you know, everything was new that we would encounter. And the problem is that when we grow up, things just start to become repetitive. So when I was a kid, I was always jumping on tables on one leg, closing my eyes, doing weird things as most kids do. But now we just try doing it for a couple of seconds. It feels weird. So the thing is that as you start to grow up, things just become a lot of repetitive, you know, things just start to get really repetitive for us. And that's when our brains just get out of shape. Um, so that's what I like to talk about is that um, everyone has the ability. If you're just not in the flow of working out your brain and not working out by doing Sudoku, but working out, like you said, not the tough way, then that's how you can get your brain back into shape. And you can be someone who's 100 years old and have an amazing brain health. You know, it's, it's sure. Once again. The other intelligence, such as facts and figures, learning how to drive, like uh, what is the capital of Egypt? You know, those things end up, you know, reducing as age goes. But fluid intelligence can actually keep increasing as age goes up. So, right. Okay. As long so as you're working it out. At this point, what I want to then talk about a little bit next is we're talking about the difference between having these structured habits versus being creative and seeking discomfort. So there's a bit of a polarity, right, between having structure. And then this kind of ties back to where we have the default mode network where Mm. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. You can correct me that we have our autonomic processes that happen. Like we train our body that we don't have to make all these decisions. We don't have to actively think through everything we do throughout the day because it's built into a system. So how then do we find a balance between having habits in place and having defined structure, especially like we talk about in lifestyle, we'll get to a little bit later. I mean, just, you know, healthy habits for physiology that can help us perform. But how do we balance between having these habits and these things in place that are going to allow us to be efficient, allow us to function without having to overstrain ourselves mm. to get through, you know, the mundane tasks of the day. And also then balance on the opposite side of the polarity spectrum is how do we also though encourage discomfort and encourage us to be in these situations where habits are thrown out the window? You know, where do you strike that balance and how do you then incorporate and build, like you talked about the start, a system and a framework 
so that you can be highly efficient with the stuff that you can do with as little thought as possible. You know, like your, a lot of your daily activities are, you know, things you may have to do for work or for life, but then still have that window to maximize with maximum cognitive capacity, your creativity and to create that fluid intelligence. I think that it would be something that as I'm listening to you talk and I'm reflecting on my life and the things I'm doing, how do I find that balance so that I can be as efficient in everything I need to do during the day and still have the maximum cognitive capacity to go out and make myself uncomfortable so that I can develop the food intelligence so I can continue to evolve. I no, think it's it's good. It's very dynamic, but I'd love to just kind of dive in question. and do that. Quite amazing question, my friend. Like I, there's going to be two parts to this because one is habit formation and there's a way to hack your brain to actually create habits that not only are sustainable, but that stick. That's the problem. Like I've worked with people and they're like, oh, I worked with other coaches before and I'm waking up at 5 a.m. And as soon as I lose that accountability aspect, they don't stick. There's a reason why. Mm. And once again, we'll get into that. But the the reason, but I can't talk about that first because I need to first talk about what holds us back from actually doing these things. Like you said, there's that balance. Like, how do we get uncomfortable? How do we do these things that that are tough? Why don't we? We know the right things to do sometimes. Why don't we? So there's two big things that keep us uh, and from, you know, from ourselves. And that is one is fear of failure, which is really just the fear of shame. And the other is fear of uncertainty. So those are the two big monsters that are constantly blocking those, you know, genius ideas or habit formation or whatever that is in your brain. If you're not willing to deal with uncertainty, then innovation is by its very nature uncertain, you know? So, so, and here's an interesting part. And I'll get, I'll give you the neuroscience. Like the reason, like, why are we f- afraid of uncertainty in the first place? You know, people, every single person had on the, like on Instagram is like turning their phone around who's six years old. and's like, yeah, I have a fear of uncertainty. I'm like, why is it happen to everyone? <laughs> let me get into like, you know, it's, it's just a common thing. People use that as a buzzword almost, but let me tell you why. Um, so maybe for you, you know, uh, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Um, so when you're, when you're afraid of doing something, how does it feel usually? And then I'll explain to you why you feel that way. But w- like, for example, you moving, started, let's say starting your podcast, right? I know yeah. you, I was into your intro podcast and you're like for a month or so, people are saying you should start it, you should not start it, and you didn't know if you should do it or not and all this. So why were you debating with yourself? Like, what was that feeling? Yeah, okay, so what was the feeling? Okay, so I, it would be easy to default answer and say, because I didn't know if it was gonna work out. But really, in many ways, I think it would come down to two things. First of all, when I feel discomfort or when I feel that fear of uncertainty and whether it's for the podcast example or just other things in my life, it's definitely, there's a physiological response where I would, you know, you can physically feel it kind of in your gut. You feel tension. And I've even gotten to the point where I've started to pay a lot of pen- closer attention to my body. When I do things that kind of uh, are a little bit nerve wracking. And for example, as, as you know, I was just telling you that I just moved down to Columbia rather impulsively here for a trip. And, you know, I could feel. Too. <laughs> yeah, with an amazing view. But, you know, I could feel because it's uncertainty, it's a new country, it's a new language, everything is new, that I could feel my heartbeat elevating. You know, I could feel the way, it's really hard to nail down, but I could feel the physiological response of stress. And I don't want to say that I can feel cortisol levels increase, but I have learned to identify, you know, through my own uh, analysis of my life and through physiological metrics, you know, when I'm in a stress state, this is how my body feels. And which therefore, in probably many ways, is elevated cortisol Amazing. and you know, other glucocorticoids and whatnot. But I've been able to feel that when I was on the plane getting ready, and like, I don't know what's going on. I'm about to go to immigration and I don't speak Spanish or, or very little. You know, when you get through these situations, or yesterday I went out and I bought a SIM card and I had a, a, a challenging conversation uh, with the lady there because I have obviously very minimal Spanish. And you can feel that stress. So there's definitely a physiological response where I feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
you know, it's kind of like that gut feeling that people get where it's like, oh, I just don't feel right. You got the nerves, you got the butterflies. I think people like to call it. Yeah. Uh, but then the other side, when I think about it a little bit more psychologically, which I think is still super relevant, would be the ego threat, the threat to your ego. You know, and I've always thought that ego fundamentally is the need to be appreciated and acknowledged. And that, like you said, it comes back to the idea of shame. And what if this flops? What if people look at me differently? Does that change my identity of myself? Does that change how I perceive myself? Am I still going to be appreciated? Am I going to be recognized? Am I going to be put down? And I think it's, it's just, it felt, it feels like a threat to your ego in many ways. And I don't know if I'm, if I'm giving a good answer on how to no, really describe it. It's difficult to try and describe how you feel, but there are telltale signs that something is different and something is just not what we're accustomed to perhaps. No. And that was an amazing answer. And I totally hear you, man. Like when I, do things that are uncomfortable. It, it, there is, if you are very self-aware of physical aspects of physiology, you know, you, you know, like you say, you're not really feeling like, Oh, my cortisol is like 23 today, <laughs> you know, like, but, um, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's, and I, I give you the neuroscience reason why it happens. Um, because, yeah, please do. And I love the ego thing and I'll, I'll touch on in a second, but see uncertainty, it registers in the human brain quite literally as physical pain. So, so, so there's this tension, this gap where the brain, it cannot be easy again until it's been resolved. So different parts of the amygdala light up because everything, if everything that's happening to you is like pain, pain, and your body can't tell the difference. So everyone has different levels of uncertainty, you know, comfort with uncertainty. Like if you're an entrepreneur, by definition, you have more uncertainty levels of comfort than someone else. Mm. But once again, the one of the main reasons why is because it quite literally registers as physical pain in the body. And the interesting thing about ego is the number one thing that I've seen um, in terms. Of, so, so, and this is maybe like doing a sidestep, but um, gratitude, right? We know gratitude is important, bread and gratitude, blah, blah, blah. People who are, if you make 60K or plus, it doesn't 60K a year in US dollars. If you're, it's, it's, you've covered your basic uh, sustainable requirements for life. That's it. You're happy. But if, even if you have like a million dollars after that, apparently according to research, it doesn't make you any happier. What does though is gratitude it gives you 25% increase in happiness and wealth and abundance in every single aspect of your life almost. The reason why is be, and the reason why people have a tough time dealing with gratitude is because of ego. Um, I, you know, people think like, uh, I deserve this. I deserve that. Right. People, we take, and I was, you know, I'm someone like that too. I have a, I have a high ego, clearly. And, <laughs> but we always take, take things as, as grant, as for granted, you know, like this is for granted, it's for granted. But people who have really, you know, high levels of gratitude, which also have high levels of happiness, wealth and abundance and whatever, have take things for granted. They take things as granted, you know, if they use words like blessings, they use words like gifts. So that's a big distinction I make there. And I love this quote and I love, and I, and I'll say it here again. Um, a good day for the ego, a good day for the soul is a bad day for the ego. And I think that's a uh, really, that, that hits hard. And that's like, maybe there's something there, but just, just a small thing, you know, and the, so basically what I'm trying to get to is like what that, that feeling you have, like, uh, you know, you, you know, oh, maybe this is not the right move or what my identity is or blah, blah, blah. Flip it around. You can be grateful. G gratitude and ego are the same size, same different sides of the same coin. You know, mm -hmm. when you, when you feel a lot of gratitude, you feel that, 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 that happiness, that moment that, that, um, you know, like, wow, like, you know, I'm doing so well and like, blah, blah. Ego's the same way. Ego's not a bad feeling. It's just bad when it makes it, you know, you're a servant to ego versus its master. 
So gratitude is um, the same side of the same coin, but it's just a different manifestation of the same exact feeling. So I, I would say in any case, um, you know, anyone out there who's listening who feels like, you know, their ego comes in the way a lot, practice gratitude, man. Even if it's think of three things before sleeping in bed. And here's the second part. Now, I, I and so basically, essentially, uncertainty registers as physical pain in the brain, and you literally can't do anything about it besides just get uncomfortable. And just to interrupt you real quick. Now, if we talk about like the stomachs and your butterflies, is that because of the gut brain connection to the vagus nerve? Is that why you feel mm -hmm. in your gut, like physically feel pain in your gut or like heartbreak or something? Because, you know, your, your neural pathways go right through. Is that, does that um, tie in up from a neuroscience perspective or is that? Yeah. So, 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 so I would correct you there. Your neural pathways don't go to your gut. Um, what, what essentially happens is there's three types of systems we have in our, there's the nervous, the, the central nervous system. Okay. That's, you know, your spine and pretty much helps you react to certain situations. You touch the stove, it burns, you move your hand away. Central nervous system. Second, second system we have in our body is per peripheral nervous system. So that's essentially the fight or flight mode. You know, when, when people, deer in headlights type situation, when, um, you hear like a, a firework and you think so, like a, a gunshot and you quickly, like, you know, get prepared, right? Yeah. That's New York City living, right? You've been there long enough. I had that a few times. Sirens <laughs> and the gunshots. Gosh, like I literally had to start using ocean sounds at night to drown it out. <laughs> but um, and when I was when I was in New York during uh, the Fourth of July and all the fireworks, there was leading up the week before it was it must have been at least a full week from Fourth of July. And there's a couple of fireworks that went off as I was walking down the street one night, and I was terrified because I, I knew it wasn't the Fourth of July yet, and it took me a little while to clue in that the celebration is not reserved for just one day. So that definitely uh -oh. activated my sympathetic response pretty fast. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we. Dude, New York's a shit show often, but you have, it's a love and hate relationship. You, you smell, you walk outside, you smell piss and you're like, oh, this sucks. But then it's like, honestly, it's like an amazing feeling as well. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that's the peripheral area, exactly what you said. You know, this, this is the type of part, the primal part of your brain that hijacks control, shuts down all your emotional cognitive reasoning abilities and immediately, you know, goes to protective mode. The last system we have is called the enteric system. And this is where, what is it? Like a couple of hundred million, all your neurotransmitters are built here and this is essentially all in your gut science has now shown that most of your neurotransmitters that are serotonin dopamine um uh what's the happy one um i can't think of it oh, on top um, of my head. uh but, but essentially all, all a lot of the neurotransmitters over 100 million are all formed in your gut so oftentimes when clients come to me and they're being anxious and depressed of course if it's clinical it's a different reason but oftentimes the root source is dude what are you eating and they're like, you're here to fix my brain. What, what are you talking about <laughs> what I'm eating? So your gut is one of the most important reasons uh, for the healthy transport of neurotransmitters in your in your body. So the reason why you feel like that feeling is like, all right, let me give you an example. Um, you want to ask a pretty girl or boy on a date, right? And mm -hmm. you essentially start getting butterflies in your stomach. Why is that? Well, the reason why is because your serotonin levels are being increased. So your body starts pumping on more serotonin. Where does serotonin come from? Your stomach. So your body is a normal, natural production level, right? Suddenly it's like, oh, I need to go ask this person on a date. Oh, wow, look, look at the way he looks. Look at the way she looks. Butterflies start coming in your stomach. That's nothing but your body pumping different, uh, different uh, mm. pharmacology of, of whatever you want to call it, of different various of cortisol, this and that, because it might be stressful, it might be happy, it might be, right. it might be inspiring. So your dopamine, it might be, it might be something else. So that's why your stomach is feeling that way. So when you feel uncertainty, it registers this once again, physical pain, physical pain, how does it respond in your enteric system with different neurotransmitters being produced? So, and when it gets produced, where does the production happen in your gut, in your stomach, the enteric nervous system? Mm. So, and what's interesting is that uh, uh, we're essentially nothing but just instincts and emotions. 
like mm-hmm. with a thin layer of let's say civilization which is like oh you shouldn't walk on the sidewalk because that's jaywalking right um so that's pretty much who we are and the reason why we're just instincts and emotions is because we're just we're we're, we're just playing chemist with ourselves all the time with our brain with our gut whatever it is so um yeah, sorry. I guess I've been a little abstract there for a second. But <laughs> the reason why you feel that is because um, anytime something happens that makes you feel a certain way, you're if, if it's a, like an ex- increase or decrease of like a like a, a proportional amount, like like you were about to ask a girl or a guy on a date, you, you're feeling certain you're about to bungee jump or whatever. You always feel in your gut first because that's where all the neurotransmitters are created. But I think most of the 95 percent or something like that. It's pretty crazy. Okay. Yeah, that's something I did not know about the anterior system or that. 95% of the neurotransmitters are in your gut. So that is super. I knew there was definitely a large gut brain connection. I don't know the extent of it as well as you. So just tying this back in then, we talked, uh, initially we were talking about creativity, having a space for creativity versus having habits and structure and going back to a little bit of habits now so that we can create a system to facilitate our mm. maximum cognitive capacity, our maximum health. We just, you just finished talking a lot about physiology and why does nutrition and what you eat actually matter for thinking and for creative thinking? Why does Sid Sunrise or get up at 5 a.m. And how does that maybe help him? And now I'm not saying that's necessarily going to function the same way for everyone, but how do we use physiology to create habits and create behavior change? Like we've mentioned before, the key is to change behavior so that we can then facilitate the neuroplasticity and the growth that we're looking for. And what are some of the key things? So for example, from your book, Spark Your Inner Genius, what are some of the key ways that we can implement physiology to transform our lives? Amazing question. And that really gets into the core research of my work. Um, and to get into that, I, I think what I need to explain first is like how I mentioned earlier, that breakthroughs are accidental, aren't accidental, they're induced, right? So there are three breakthroughs that actually are doable. And, you know, of course, you can get into like micro, micro, there's mainly three overarching types of breakthroughs. Um, See, at the end of the day, innovation is just the same idea, but applied to different fields or tinkering with or small tweak to an already existing idea in the same field. Think of, think of Uber, you know, the world's largest ride shit, you know, world's largest taxi company doesn't own any vehicles. They didn't create taxi concepts. Think of the steam engine, think of the light bulb, like all these were just pre-existing innovations that were small tweaked and tinkering. Um, even like something like, uh, Facebook, they, the world's most popular content provider creates no content on their own essentially right so so um airbnb you know you can so something interesting is happening but the reason why is because there's three main types of breaks so that's innovation what innovation is in a nutshell so how do we create that for ourselves in our lives and 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 a lot of people have the misconception that oh like um creativity and innovation is reserved for the few like the, the the ceos the artists the the musicians or whatever that is no, you can be smart in any field. You can be, and I have a chapter called Smart of Intellect, but you can be creative in any field. You can be a creative mom and just find a creative way to put your, your daughter to sleep. You know, you can, so, so creativity is, you can be a creative soccer player. So like creativity is nothing but just, uh, and that's what I think a lot of people have started to believe in the past because it used to be like publish or perish in the, in the, in, in the academic world. You know, people only used to believe in creativity for the academics, the Fords, the Edisons, the Einsteins. But now we all have the ability with technology to sort of, you know, induce creativity in small ways in our lives and actually make a big change for us. So get moving on from that point, there are three types of breakthroughs. Um, the first one is a paradigm breakthrough. Think of these, the Einsteinian revolutions, the one insight that will change the entire world forever. So these ones are more of a question of timing and luck than they are of genius. And, you know, if you look at Einstein, he stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, 
So chasing after a paradigm breakthrough is a recipe for misery because they really happen once per generation with luck, with timing. These aren't the ones we should be chasing after. And most people do, you know, so let's put that to the side. The second breakthrough is my favorite. It's called a Eureka breakthrough. And this is the one we know the best, you know, um, it's a concrete problem with a concrete solution. Um, let me give an example. Uh, Archimedes, famous mathematician, you know, huge Greek, uh, Greek philosopher, once upon a time, as the story goes, is that in his kingdom, the king was wearing a really hefty crown and it was with gold and rubies and all this stuff, but they couldn't find a way to weigh it um, or measure it because it's an irregular object. So at the time, he puts out a notice. He's like, if anyone in the kingdom can find a way to weigh and measure an irregular object, essentially his crown, I will give them a prize, right? Archimedes was a nobody at the time. So the king assigns the, you know, with a task to measure and weigh the crown. So Archimedes is running around trying to figure out this and that. How do I, figure, how do I figure out a way to do it? And he goes to his shower and sits in his bathtub and immediately Eureka, right? A concrete problem, right. concrete solution. What happens is as he sits in the water, the water level rises. How do you measure an irregular object? You, you know, you know, you submerge it in water and measure how much the water rises. So. That's a Eureka break. And then, of course, Armenians ran through the city naked, screaming Eureka. But um, that's the image we all have. <laughs> you have to after, after a moment like that. Yeah. After a moment like that. <laughs> yeah. Why, how else are you going to celebrate? I mean, if, if you're pulling off, you know, Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting type breakthroughs, <laughs> then you better be celebrating in style by you know, going to the Harvard bar and, and, and picking, up, picking up girls there or however right. you'd like to do it. <laughs> That was such a good movie. I love that movie. But it, it, that's that's it. That, that that's a mathematician type answer. You know, like concrete problem right. to a concrete solution. Um, so that's a, the most common ones we know. And the third breakthrough and the final one is a metaphorical breakthrough. And these breakthroughs are some of the you know they're most important breakthroughs you can have, but they don't happen in the same instant eureka way. Metaphorical uh, breakthroughs happen through dreams, through metaphors. Um, for example, you know you've heard uh, Ellie's how the person who made the sewing machine. Uh, they had a dream that at night that they're kidnapped by a Native American tribe and they have these pointy spears. And then it's like, oh, like when he woke up, pointy spear, maybe that's a good idea for a sewing machine. So that's an example of, you know, you might have a dream of you're chasing a unicorn and there's a fire breathing dragon. And then you wake up and like, oh, maybe I need to change my mattress. That's, what, you know, like, so right. you have to understand that in ways of metaphor. So you have to interpret the problem that you're trying to solve. So you know, basically a part of your brain is saying, hey, here's an answer. And I'm just going to give you some crazy metaphors and dreams until you can actually find a way to resolve it. So here's a science pitch. Um, you know, we're pretty clear what part of your brain is all sorts of human creativity, innovation and genius. And that's the default mode network. And this has really not been laid to the public mass market before. But the default mode network is composed of 10 and 13 different networks. And it's, you know, everyone has this part of the brain. And um Essentially, what happens is that, um, and sorry if I'm getting off topic, but what was the original? No, this is, ex this is exactly <laughs> where I want to go because I okay. want to understand how can we, okay, like what is the key to actually being more creative? And I think this is exactly where you're going. Okay, yeah, so this. sorry, I, I'm, a, I'm a more of a science guy, right? So I always need to explain the science man what happens. And of um, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> and, and if you're the same way, you probably have, feel like you, some, you just randomly stumble upon ideas on accident sometimes, right? And, all jokes aside, sometimes alcohol has a role to play in it. Or um, uh, well, why is that? So essentially what happens is that there's the default mode network, which is at the back of the brain. And I'll explain in a second what that does. But it's a whole source of human creativity. That's that's all you need to know for this context of this conversation. What happens is why does alcohol sometimes help you get good ideas? How does, um, you know, stumbling upon ideas by accident help? 
Well, the reason is because we have something on our brain called ex- executive mode network. And, and the executive node network happens to be our social inhibitor. It's the social monitor. And, you know, don't get me wrong, we definitely need it. It's the one that makes us civilized. But um, let's take an example of Phineas Gage. He's a famous uh, psychological study. Essentially, he's a railroad employee, gets a rod shot through his entire brain, messes up his prefrontal cortex. In our situation, he messes up also executive mode network. So out of nowhere, he was coming with incestuous, horrific, terrible comments and stuff. But he survived and he was fine. So essentially what happens is your executive mode network is a social inhibitor. But it's also the one that goes ahead and um, makes decisions for you. For example, your default mode network is um, called default because it's always on. You know, it's constantly operating in the background. The problem is that though it's constantly operating in the background, it needs to be in the foreground to communicate to you what it's found, to communicate to you right. this backlog of ideas. So example, um, and let me show you the difference of what each one does. Default mode network might be like, hey, Sid, I want you to go to Hawaii. Book a ticket. Let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> it can't do shit otherwise besides tell you the idea. Your executive yeah. mode network is what puts into action. It's one that buys the ticket, books the flights, tells your friends, all that, all that. The problem is that most of our day, you know, especially in the modern wor- world, with like phones and everything, is that our executive mode is usually operating because we're constantly taking action, doing, doing, doing. So your default mode network had never has an opportunity to come to the foreground and tell you when something transformational is going to happen because, because the executive mode is always helping you get from point A to point B. And here's the catch. The problem is both modes can't be on it and operating at the same time. It's just not how your brain works. So what do we do now that I've explained to you the science? We have to kind of, and this is where we get to the core of my research. We have to find a way to get our default mode network shine through, which is by you know, getting your executive mode distracted or something else. So neuroscience has three ways. One, you can be born without an executive mode network. That'll lead to fantastic amounts of creativity. Um, and you've heard about these, you know, artists or scientists, the ones who are terrible to people to work with, but are very creative. Um, not naming names here, but we've all heard stories. But see, that's the thing. But it'll really be tough to function in the normal world. Two, you can deliberately turn it off, you know, your executive mode network by social inhibitors, by alcohol, drugs, Sure, that's one way to go about it too. Uh, you hear people all the time, and that's another whole conversation, like taking like LSD or these types of things, and the Beatles and Steve Jobs, and they came up with amazing ideas. That's that's one way to do it too. I don't <laughs> recommend it. Um, <laughs> um, third, and this is what really uh, starts getting to the, the the crux of my research is that you can deliberately turn off the social inhibitors. Um, sorry, you can do it without alcohol or drugs by playing chemistry with your own brain, but in different ways like meditation, exercise, etc. So. Amazing. What's interesting is there is a fourth biohacking, biohacking, right? There, okay. literally. So, uh, uh, and there's a fourth way, essentially, and this is what's the most interesting one. We distract the executive mode network, and this is what no one's talking about. Why do we get our best ideas in the shower? Why do we get our best ideas when we're driving the car? And that's what we'll get into in a second. Um, but oftentimes, this is where people question me and stop. They're like, I don't want to be creative. What's the point of being creative? I'm happy where I am. Um, you know, what's the point of creativity? I'm just going to work my nine to five job or whatever it is. And let me ask you a question, Brayden. Um, so, you know, the tin can, right? And I love giving this example. People have made the tin can uh, a great way to like store food for long periods of time. The problem was that there was no can opener at the time. So people were constantly bashing in our rocks, getting injured and all this stuff. So how long do you think it took to come up with the can opener? Oh, geez. Well, the way you're leading into this, I'm going to think it's probably longer than it should have been. It was a hundred uh, years. <laughs> so for a hundred years, time. 
right? For a hundred years. I mean, it was a great revolution for armies and, you know, people who are away from home, but for a hundred years, people were smashing these on rocks, cutting their fingers on these tin cans. So there's a lot of tin can problems in everyone's life and your life that you may not even know that there's an alternative. These people were smashing them, breaking these tin cans on rocks without even knowing there's a can opener possible available. So what right. problems like these are in your life? What tin can problems are in your life that you don't even know that are causing you injuries and hurt that you could actually solve with a creative solution? So, so last, so I, the last thing I said earlier was, um, we distract our mind, right? We distract our executive mode network to let our default mode network shine through. And we do this in a systematic way. So there's really four steps for creativity that neuroscience says. And I translated this into a more in, a lifestyle because I don't think creativity is something you sit there, all right, time to be creative. And you get into, <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. No one's ever going to do that. Um, but that's what neuroscience says you should do. Um, <laughs> so I created a creative lifestyle. So let me tell you the four steps that neuroscience says, and then I'll get into what I think is the, 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 the key actionable steps you can take to be more creative and induce creative lifestyle. So okay. the first um, thing neuroscientists say is preparation. You have to recognize a problem, find out as much as you can. What is this problem? Do a lot of research, blah, blah, blah. Second is incubation. This is the interesting part that I connected the dots to with the Execmo network. So the second part is incubation. Do something completely unrelated to the problem to allow your mind to unconsciously work. This is the, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to find out the problem to why my sales aren't getting faster. All right, screw the sales. I'm going to go for a walk or a jog or whatever. Mm. So what happens right, is okay. that the third step is elimination. Because during this incubation or an unrelated event, we'll give you the answer. Because we often think, especially like, you know, the way the hustle culture works, like work, 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 work. You'll get the answer if you work harder. No, your brain doesn't work that way. Your brain only comes up with answers when your executive mode network is distracted, when you're incubating, doing something other than what's actually needing to be done. And fourth is clarification. Check to see if your solution will work. Those four steps are fun, they're fuzzy and warm and they feel good, but they really don't help us solve the problem. So here's what gets into the core work of my book. But to be more innovative, you know, to you have to create a lifestyle, a creative inducing lifestyle is what I like to call it. And you have to literally start guiding this process deliberately to churn out creative ideas all the time. So, you know, Google X is a great example. The head of the program literally guides their people step by step over time to um, go ahead and create genius ideas, which is why Google turns out amazing ideas all the time. But here are the five steps that I think anyone can do to make them more practical. Number one is to actually create a ritual. So this is what I mean by that. Look at the genius artists, writers, innovators, like anyone you think is like wildly creative. So many of them have taken their entire day from breakfast till brushing their teeth at night and put it into a sacrosanct redundant routine that never ever varies. Um, this is kind of what I've talked about earlier that, um, you know, we spend all our brain power doing all these other things when um, if you have routines and habits in place, you can focus on deep work when it needs to be done. So this is another interesting thing about creating a ritual. This is that certainty bucket. So low is that certainty bucket in those areas that it needs to be able to, you know, complete uncertainty work. So when they're loading the certainty bucket, we're like, all right, I brush my teeth, this, I wear this clothes, I do that, do that. Their uncertainty power has full charge. They don't have to worry about it at all. So they're able to actually do it in areas they're willing to do. Because like I said, finite, you know, will, willpower is a finite resource. So you should reserve for what's important. Um, right. We've all got an uncertainty threshold. So like, uh, you know, um, don't use it up handling it where you don't need to handle that capacity elsewhere. Right. And there's a reason why I think creative guys like uh, Jay-Z, Tom Hanks, they will infamously never take a meeting past 7 p.m. no matter how urgent or profitable it is for them because that is just their ritual that is their routine 
another one is too, and this is um a big one I've been like uh, parading a lot, but living a choice minimum lifestyle. So reducing choice in every possible thing that is not important to us so that you have your full brain capacity to be available for the areas you want to be able to. Because this is what happens. The paradox of choice really harms creativity and innovation. You know, and, you know, back to my example, you wake up, you choose which soap you want to use, what clothes you want to wear, you end up at Starbucks. You know, like by the time you sit down to do your work, your paradox of choice, multiple uncertainty, handling, comparison, ability, whatever you want to call it, is dried out. So you don't really have that much time to solve that amazing cancer revolving, you know, revolution or whatever your solution is simply because of what Starbucks you wanted to drink that morning. Um, this is why the famous example of CEO like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, they wear the same clothes every single day. Exactly. Um, yeah. The Zuckerberg gray shirt, the Steve Jobs, black turtleneck. turtleneck. Same, yeah. yeah Obama turtleneck has turtleneck. the same three suits. Like there, there's some very, there's some very uh, famous examples, but you know, that's, that's the lift I showed a minimalist, uh, low lifestyle. And the third one is I always like to add something fun, but there's a deeper meaning to it, but play more poker. But, uh, <laughs> the reason I say I this that. is because, yeah, you, you have to learn to think more probabilistically. That's what it really comes down to. See, poker is a fantastic way to get comfortable with uncertainty differently. You know, people always ask, how do you uncertainty? Well, if meditation is not your gig, if, if, um, playing video games or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Poker is a fantastic way to get comfortable with uncertainty in a different way. So you stop looking at things in black and white or will it succeed or will it fail? And say so you start looking at things probabilistically, which is the right way to go about it. So when deciding between two options, you're whether or not realizing um, you're assigning each uh, probability equation to it of success. You're always playing metaphorical poker with yourself here, there, what to eat, what not to do. Um, and the games and the games of chance are really good at, and this games of chance is really good for training this, uh, uncertainty and this handling, you know, these situations in life. So if you combine that with meditation, self-awareness, what your body and, and mind are going through, you really can speed up that creativity process. So once you increase your levels, you're saving your capacity for handling events and moments for thinking probabilistically when it matters. And this is where you start getting really, really good. So, um, you know, once you're, so, Poker is one way that I like to describe it as fun, but you know, you can play video games. You can, um, uh, once again, this is nothing but just doing something the hard way. This is nothing, nothing but just doing something in a comfortable way. And for poker, it's uncomfortable. You have to think in a different way. So yeah, especially when you have money on the line, <laughs> when you got money on the line, when you were betting on the Super Bowl last night, everyone was thinking, uh, everyone was increasing their creativity muscle and no one right. realized. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Of course, don't get carried away with it, but see, if you're like me and you'll sadly, sadly never be a good poker player, my fourth tip is meditate and just seriously, seriously meditate. It's not a religious, it's not spiritual, it's scientific. That is proven. That is over and over documented. The, quite literally, you're increasing your gray matter when you meditate. Like there, you're creating structural changes in your brain when you meditate. Um, so if you're like me and you'll never be a good poker player, the one way to tackle this is through meditation. And you can go on a week long retreat, 10 day long retreat. Um, or just meditate for a minute. And I love calling meditation as a mobile device. You can do it in the elevator. You can just pause an elevator and just meditate for one minute, when the subway, on your way to work. Um, of course, don't do this while you're driving. And uh, <laughs> when you're when you're in a meeting and you know you have your camera turned off with Zoom and stuff that we have these days, just take a breath. I always I always uh, tell clients every single time when I start working with them, in your calendar, book three periods of time of one minute in your calendar. For one minute, three times in your day, each day, just to have a one minute break of meditation where you don't do nothing. You literally just sit there and breathe. 
We don't passively engage in social media. You don't go on around. You just sit there. And what happens is that the reason why meditation is so powerful, and I'm going to really start connecting the dots, is because you're really throwing yourself into this void where you've got nothing to distract yourself from the contents of your mind. No paper, no gadgets, no electronics. This, this is a definition of uncertainty. If there's any definition of uncertainty, it's this. So I'm not telling you to meditate to become like a guru or anything else. I'm telling you to meditate to become better at dealing with uncertainty. The fear of uncertainty, there's nothing stronger than throwing yourself into void of darkness, nothing to distract yourself with. These days we do laundry and we still need headphones. We eat food and we still want to watch a movie. I do it all the time too, but meditation is that practice of every single day, 10 minutes getting in that pump for your brain to practice uncertainty. So even if you're walking five minutes every single day into complete uncertainty, not knowing the internal experience of what you're going to go through, you really get the opportunity to communicate with your brain on a level that you'll never be able to while going through daily motions of life. And the last one, five, is intentionally doing mindless tasks. And that's pretty much my whole book. Uh, that's the, the golden nugget, the core, the core research that people are, you know, I always get messaged in DMs of how it changed their life, but intentionally doing mindless tasks. So we need both parts of the brain. We need the executive mode network. We need the default mode network. We need it all. We need both to work, right? This is that we're in a time and era where we don't daydream anymore. So the DMN has a backlog of genius ideas right now, and it never gets a chance to speak up because you're constantly putting your executive mode to work and run the show. So when does the default mode get its spotlight? It's when the executive mode is distracted just enough to keep it busy with something. Such as, and this is it, a repetitive, mindless task. So we all that we all know really well. Such as, why do we all get shower thoughts and shower ideas, right? It's because your body is going through the motions, putting the shampoo, putting the body wash, or whatever that is. The reason you get all great ideas in the shower is because your executive mode is just distracted, just enough, so that your DMN could pop up with amazing ideas. Going on a drive, we all know how to. Once you learn how to drive, it's it's not really uh, it's not really a cognitive tasking ability. So you just drive, your executive mode starts to get distracted and shut off a bit. The backlog of genius ideas start pouring and pouring through. So this is nothing much to say. And I'll, I'll add on a bonus of this. If you want to on demand create creativity, think of the problem at hand first and then do the intentional mindless activity. So for example, do these mindless intentional tasks without distraction. So your brain has the time to produce the forefront, the backlog of genius ideas. Um, you know, to a person who does a breakthrough, just think of the problem and then eat your food. You know, think of the problem, then do the laundry. And these are the ones I'm picking up because they're common, but think yeah. of the idea and then walk. Cause, um, and the reason they have to be mindless is because as uh, one of the myths in neuroscience that is called neuromyths is that we can multitask. We can do multiple things at once. We can text and drive. We can do, no, your brain doesn't operate that way. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to get into a state of flow when you're doing your best amount of work. And what happens is your body's, your brain's almost like a computer. For any software engineers out there, it shuts off and then it goes to a new task. So, so think about it as like someone in the bathroom washing their hands. You have to wait in line for someone to, in front of you to wash your hands, right? Then they move away, then you wash your hands and then they move away and then they come back. So you're, that's how your brain manages processes. So if you're doing one task and then your phone gets a text and you look at your text, then your brain immediately shuts that off, has the other person behind washing their hands. Okay. That's cool. And then it takes 10, 15 minutes to get back in state of flow. So I guess the reason I was bringing this up was because um, essentially we need to maximize our productivity. And the best way to do that is not by mindlessly doing a task, which demands cognitive reserves. Like it's just literally doing something which is not tough at all to do. It's something that we all know how to do. It's like walking, sitting, eating, uh, anything that doesn't demand you to like multitask. 
So, um, yeah, man, that's that's pretty much uh, I've been talking for a long time now <laughs> and uh, I can already hear my voice getting annoying. But um, this is this is the, the biggest thing that has improved, um, you know, my clients lives, my life, intentional, mindless tasks. These create, you know, five steps to actionable steps to creating creativity. Um, if you can find a way to actually, you know, and, and it kind of brings us back to our roots. When we used to eat food, it used to be a moment of grace and a moment of getting together and enjoying the food and the process and all these things. But now we just turn on the TV to distract ourselves once again. We're, we are obsessed and addicted to having our executive member run the show. People always think that, you know, innovation has gone up. Have you seen Google, Apple, Amazon? Actually, if you look at statistics, innovation has actually gone down in the last 50 years. Um, 50 years ago, when someone wanted to, let's say, create a table, they would say, I'm going to create the best table in the world and I'm going to find a creative way and an amazing way to do it. But nowadays, oh, I want to be, I want to make a table that's amazing. Oh, you're going to probably go work for Ikea, you know? I want to create the best bank in the world. I'm going to go work for JP Morgan Chase, whatever it is, right? Um, so these days, creativity and innovation are actually taking a hit. There's only five, six companies, 10 companies that are doing innovative things, but most of the population isn't. So, um, and the reason a lot to do is once again, like the demand of technology or executive mode network, blah, 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 but I'll shut up and I'll, I'll let you um, move on, uh, you know, whatever agenda you had. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to actually wrap it up soon. So I know we both have stuff going on, but I just want to recap for the people to just these five things because I think these are amazing. And I, I can listen to this all day because this is something that really resonates with me. So that I'm trying to implement more, but just so people can be reminded. Number one on Sid's creative inducing lifestyle, which are deliberate choices. I love the way you said deliberate. Number one is create a ritual. Number two is live a choice minimum lifestyle. Number three was play bar poker or have fun, whatever that may look like. Number four, meditate. Use meditation as a mobile device throughout your day, wherever you are. And then number five, and this one is really, really powerful, intentionally, intentionally do mindless tasks. And I think that's the key. It's a little bit counterintuitive to think about intentionally being mindless, but you have to do that. And I can just say from my experience, when I was first starting putting together my podcast and good research, if I was walking or working out or eating or cooking, I would have podcasts and I'd have audiobooks and I would spend, I would try and consume the way I initially saw it was I have X amount of hours during the day. I'm going to fill it with as much productivity as possible. And I not only would be burned out, but I wouldn't be processing. I wouldn't be retaining information. I wouldn't be getting into those flow states where I'm really in a zone. And I just feel like cognitive overload. Like, and, and like you said, the whole idea of digital dementia, this is just so much information. We're just yeah. absorbing so much. We take it in and it's just, it's really slowing down everything. And then over time, I, there's a few days after a couple months where I was, I said, you know, I just need to take a break and I'll just go for a walk with no headphones. God forbid you have no headphones. You're just out in nature all alone. And all of a sudden, just my brain would just start firing, you know, or I just work out, you know, today, maybe I'm just going to listen to a playlist. I like, I'm just going to listen to music that I've heard a thousand times. So I don't have to actively think about the songs. Amazing. You know, you know this music off my heart. And then all of a sudden, Amazing. you know, just these light bulbs start going off. Right. Amazing. And it's just really, really incredible to see that. And I've seen that in my own life. And it's something that I'm trying to continue to improve more and more because I want to innovate everything I do, whether it's talking about my personal life, my relationships, my career, my ambitions, yeah. the same thing for you. I mean, you have a lot of buckets and all of them were going to require innovation to be able to be creative and perform at your highest level. So I absolutely, I love everything we talked about today. And for the listeners here, I have not actually read Spark Greener Genius. I think it arrived about, a, I think it actually just arrived yesterday. So a day after I left for Columbia, <laughs> give or take, but I have a bunch of podcasts and I know as soon as I get my hands in the book, I'm definitely going to read it. I strongly encourage everyone to read it. And so just before we wrap up here, Sid, I'd love for you to share where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more? Tell us about your blog. Tell us about your companies. Tell us about your consulting. Tell us about everything. Where where can people learn more from Sid because you awesome. have a wealth of knowledge? Awesome. Actually, 
why don't you go ahead and ask that uh, question on the productivity and all that? I actually had a good answer in my head. Um, the one where you ended each podcast on. And then I'll... I'll, oh, I'll yeah. okay. Yeah, I, of course. I, I, okay. I, would, I would answer for that. I, I thought of it in my head earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, and then at the end, um, I'll just wrap up where you can find me. But, you know, you can find me at sitchavla.com. It's uh, one of my uh, biggest assets is like I post a blog post every single week. If you love this kind of stuff, if you love biohacking, personal development habits, you know, sign up to my email subscriber list on my website. Second, hey, if that's not your gig and you love just, you know, being on Instagram or Facebook, Sid's Two Cents. Um, I recently changed it from Sid Sunriser because I've been experimenting with actually not waking up early anymore, but you can get into that another time. You have, you have to experience, man, right? Yeah. You get experience, yeah. And, and you and I can keep talking forever, but, uh, <laughs> and yeah, Sid's Two Cents. And the last thing is, um, yep, Google, uh, search on Amazon, Spark Your Inner Genius. That is my book. Um, it has, uh, and, and if it brings any value to your life, you know, I would love to hear from you, answer any questions. And, um, yeah, I'd love to engage with all my followers and readers. So, um, hope that helps. And, uh, yeah, let's yeah, get definitely. into the last question and wrap okay, things up. The last question. And I'll just make sure I will put links to your social channels, your website, your book and everything on the show notes and on Appreciate my website. Thank you, I'll my make friend. sure that I can get that out as best as I can to make it as easy as possible. So the final question, I love to ask everyone this. I get some terrific answers. It's uh, this, my show, Learn to Perform. It's all about optimizing your health, happiness, and performance. So those are the three pillars, health, happiness, and performance. If you had one piece of advice for each of those three pillars, what would Sid's two cents be? <laughs> love it. Uh, okay, so let me start with happiness because I think that's the most important one. Um, one, th I, I don't know if you read much about stoicism, um, but uh, it's my favorite. I did an episode on stoicism, my favorite thing. Uh, amazing. If you are trying, it is the best thing you can do for yourself if you're trying to find a, like a, a lifestyle to actually be happier, freer. But there's this one quote by Seneca, and I love it. And it's, we imagine we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Mm, so true, right? Powerful. I'll say to you, we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. And Here's the thing. Um, there are things outside our forces of life that we can't control, especially with this last year. I was constantly finding myself worrying about the pandemic or the po politics. I'm the, I'm in New York, right? Um, mm -hmm. and hundreds of other things, right? That, but we suffer more in imagination than reality. And oftentimes that is just the case. We, we just need to take a hammer. What I say is we take a hammer to our life and we're like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. How do we fix this? But I said, take a flashlight instead. Be curious. Why is this this way? Why is this not working out? So instead of beating yourself about it, instead of suffering in imagination for yourself, oh, I didn't even get anything done for product. I wasn't productive today. Don't take a hammer to yourself. Take a flashlight. Be like, why wasn't I productive today? What could I have done to improve myself? And then look at it from a curious lens. Um, productivity wise, and this is something which you touched on interesting digital dementia. So one of my secrets to success, and this is the first time I'm saying this, but uh, you know, I want to give your audience a lot of value. I have a, I have like a framework, which I have put together because I read a lot of books. I don't know you do too. I do a lot of courses, podcasts, whatever. I don't remember much of it. Like I'll, like I'll read a whole book and then I'll be like, gosh, I read that book. What was the point of that again? So, <laughs> yeah. um, what I've been doing is I've created a framework for success and this is using mobile apps. Um, so if any of your listeners have uh, smartphones, this is the three, four apps that I use. Um, Evernote is my second brain. I put everything in Evernote and every time I read a book, I create notes on it. And I only read books on Kindle now. I always used to have hard paper cover back books. Just recently, a few months ago, I started using Kindle. The reason why is because I can highlight. So, mm. so what I do is eventually I read everything through Kindle. And there's a, a podcast app, which I would recommend you to download it, Braden. It's called Air. Um, um, and essentially, what you can do is you can create highlights in a podcast. You can click a button okay. and it'll record the last 30 seconds. So I use those two, um, Kindle to read. And then podcasts, I use Air. 
And the second of my framework is I get into is Evernote. Um, and essentially, sorry, that's the last one. So the second one is actually an app called Readwise. It's a subscription service, but, but oh, what I, it does, I had it for a bit. Uh, it's amazing. Trial. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. What it basically does is every single highlight you've ever had in your Kindle or your Air podcast app, and there's other functionalities like Twitter and et cetera. Um, it essentially sends it to you every single day, those five or six highlights. So I'll be going through my day and every single day. Um, and then one day I'll, and I'll get a, an email and I'll be like, Oh, this is the book you read power of habit. Like these, these are five really big highlights that have meant a lot to me, which is why I highlighted them in that moment, which you don't even remember anymore. So constantly reminding myself of that information. So I use Readwise um, uh, to do that. And sorry. So, the, so there was the Kindle, there was the, I'm just, Visually, Kindle yeah. Air, and the last one was actually called Instapaper. So Instapaper is another one I use. So these are the consuming content filters. So Instapaper is just basically anytime you read an article online, uh, you read The Economist, that sort of stuff, you can highlight once again. Then they mm -hmm. all go into Readwise, which is going to send you a subscription of random five quotes from all these different things every single day. So you're constantly re-engaging yourself with this material, which you've done so much work to read. And the last is you can export it all to Evernote. So you can see a whole bunch of your lists and your highlights and every single thing. So that's right. my so last consolidating product. everything. Yeah. Consolidating everything. You need a second brain, man. Like this brain is busy enough. So you need a second <laughs> brain to put all your content, the amazing podcasts you're listening to, spending hours a day, and you at least have like a couple of highlights, which will resonate with you. You know, a said 10 years from now will resonate with it. Right. And, right. and that time I'll be about to go give an interview like this and I'll be like, Oh, I saw this quote today. Um, so like literally the readwise thing, I saw the Seneca quote today when I was reading the daily stoic, maybe years back. So, um, Oh. And the last thing for health, man, um, dial in your habits. Um, there is nothing more important in your life than the habits. The number one percent, the top percent of the world's healthiest, wealthiest, and happiest people uh, have just completely different habits than most of us. Your self-talk's a habit. The way you move and walk and your posture and your relationships all comes down to habits. So do a self-awareness check and create sustainable, healthy habits. We already know what to do. You know you're supposed to wake up at a decent time, sleep at a decent time, eat the right foods. We all know, you know, we all know, like, and... The biggest thing that's made a difference in my health is sleep. Um, in our hustle bustle culture, we forget sleep, but the number one indicator for success is zest and zest is nothing but energy and energy sits on the pillar of sleep. So everyone always thinks, Sid, what about meditation? What about, what about nutrition? What about exercise? All that shit's irrelevant because it sits on a pillar of sleep. If you have a bad night's sleep, tell me, are you eating the right foods? Now you're probably munching, getting snacks. Do you meditate? Well, I'm passing out. And the last is, you know, are you exercising? Probably half-assed, right? So everything sits on the pillar of sleep. And we in a society are, uh, it's like a, a sleep-deprived society. Um, I think three out of every four people walk around sleep-deprived like zombies. So sleep is the pillar of what your zest sits on, which is your energy. You can have the best ideas in the world. You can be the most creative person, read every single creativity book in the world. But if you can't execute, what's the point? If you can't get out of bed, what's the point? So dial in your energy, which is nothing but getting more sleep. And of course, nutrition, habits, meditation, they'll help. But sleep... Second is, um, you know, use the context filters. Like, you know, what I said about the productivity, build a second brain of just knowledge and content. And third, you know, we suffer more in imagination than reality. You know, gotta, gotta keep reminding yourself of that emotional forecasting, whatever you want to call it. I absolutely love that. So you, you've hit on so many boxes. We, we share so many things in common and. I know we, we got to wrap up right here. So I guess I'll, I'll come just back. close it off. <laughs> I'll come back I'll, another time. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely go on this. So I want to just quickly share my favorite Epictetus quote because I oh, love perfect. stoicism just like you. Yeah, and yeah. you talked about earlier gratitude. And this quote I wrote down in my gratitude journal, which has been a big game changer for me. And it is, he is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices for those which he has. And mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent way to end this conversation. And Amazing. Uh, Amazing. The way mindset is, you know, philosophy 
just everything. This is this was phenomenal. You offered so much value. Oh, I can't wait it. to share this with other people and, and just continue to try and tweak and further improve my life. So thank you so much, Sid. Uh, I, I'm super happy that we were able to connect and get this going. And I know there's going to be more coming in the future. No, thank you. I'm so grateful. Um, you have an amazing audience, an amazing platform. And what you're doing is incredible, man. You know, wish you best of luck, success. And I know you're going to be successful no matter what you do, but this is an amazing way to do it. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and we'll talk again. To discover more, this episode with all citations is available on the website. And you can also contact me on social media with any questions or comments. If you found this episode useful or think that it may help someone else, I encourage you to pass it along. Thank you all for joining me on this journey to lifelong health, happiness, and higher performance. And remember, always be grateful, love yourself, and serve others.